Well, when I moved out of the house, um, I was just turned 18 years old, and I really loved the idea of being independent. Uh, in my parents' home, they were uh, very good parents. They were quite strict, and I've very frequently heard the phrase, while you're under my roof, you will live by my rules. One day, you will move out, and then you can do whatever you want. And so I bided my time until those days that I could move out, and when I finally did, I loved being out from under that rule. And I would kind of talk to my dad about that and tell him how wonderful it was that I had no curfew, because when I stayed at home, you know, all through high school, I had a pretty strict curfew. I had to be home before my parents went to bed, usually, um, which is like 7.30 sometimes. Um, LAUGHTER but anyway, and I was like, I can go to bed anytime I want, I can, I can do what I want, I can watch any movie that I want, I can spend my money on whatever I want, and it's just, it's just wonderful not being under this roof anymore. And my dad would just kind of smile in his understated way, say, careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And I didn't understand what he meant, because I was like, I do have this independence, I do have complete liberation from my parents. Until one day, shortly after that, um, I was working my job, I had a, a night shift at a bookstore, I was the, the night manager, and um, I closed the store at about 10 p.m., that's when the, the doors closed, and I thought, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to a movie, you know why? Because I can. I have no curfew, I can do whatever I want, uh, so I just... I went to a movie, I watched the, you know, 10.30 p.m. show and eventually got out or whatever it was um, after midnight, one in the morning, and I walked out and the parking lot was completely empty except for my car, um, the, the part of the mall that I went and I was kind of nervous, I was kind of scared, but I was like, okay, I'm going to just run to my car, it wasn't in a great neighborhood that I worked, and um, quickly opened my car and got in, locked the doors, turned the key, and the battery was dead. I had left my lights on. And uh, yeah, I know. So I had to, I didn't have a cell phone, I had to lock my car, you know, I tried everything, I didn't know what else to do, I didn't have jumper cables, there were no other cars around, and I just sat there kind of thinking like, well, what now? And what I would normally do is call my dad, <laughs> but I'd made such a big deal about how great it was to be independent of my dad, that I very sheepishly eventually had to do that, I went back to the bookstore and unlocked it to use the phone and I called him and woke him up at one in the morning and I was just like, Dad, my battery's dead. And um, he said, I'll be there as soon as I can. And sure enough, he showed up with jumper cables in his car, in his pajamas. I still remember this so clearly with his, his robe on and his slippers and got out and kind of looked at me and started the engine and we jump-started made sure it was running and got in his car and said, See you around. And he never said, I told you so, because he didn't need to. I just kept, that kept playing, like, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. And so we realize often that we're not actually as independent as we think. We are constantly in the need of God. And so I would just uh, commend to you this evening, if you ever feel like I'm a self-bained person, I am a, I'm independent of God, that be careful what you wish for. And this is what we see happen with the Israelites in Judges chapter 10. So turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 10, and we're going to learn about what to do when idols let you down and how to return to God. Just to remind you the context of, as we've been going through Judges, um, Abimelech is the son of Gideon. So we, Gideon's the famous story. He had a son, Abimelech, that killed off his brothers, his 70 brothers, and so that he could rule. 
And uh, he missed one of his brothers, though. He wasn't able to kill him. Jotham escaped. And Jotham pronounced a curse over him and the men of Shechem that helped him. And what we saw in uh, chapter 9 was that curse kind of coming to fruition where uh, he ends up crushed by his own pride, really. The, he, the, the point of that story is that the evil that he did came tumbling on his own head. And in that case, literally, as he came to the, the tower and an old lady kind of, well, just as a lady, you know, kind of dropped this millstone that landed on his head. And um, we also have a, an early case of euthanasia there because he says to his armor bearer, please, I don't want it to be said that I was killed by a woman. So his armor bearer kills him and then, you know, we still know he was killed by a woman. But anyway, that, that's where we left it last week. Um, now we're moving into chapter 10. That was kind of the end of that whole saga of Gideon, whose nickname was Jeroboam, the Baal Slayer. Um, and tonight, as we read through chapter 10, we're going to see two options to consider when asking God for help in times of trouble. There's always going to be two options to consider. One, uh, to consider. Be consistent or be repentant. It's pretty much your only options when asking God for help in times of trouble, when your battery goes dead proverbially. Okay, let's read chapter 10, a few verses here. After Abimelech, there rose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried at Shamir. So just a couple of words about Tola. Tola is one of the judges. We don't know anything about him beyond this little bit of information. So I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on Tola. Um, but his name means worm. I mean, why not? Um, his, we have a little genealogy uh, mentioned here. And the same place where he lived and, and ruled from, he also died, which may indicate that there was a stable reign. Also notice that this is a, a fairly long period of time compared to some of the others we've seen, 23 years. And he gets buried at that place. So we, we don't know anything else about him. Um, Ephraim is the the land right across from where Shechem is. And so there may also just be a reminder that, you know, all this stuff that we just read about, this chaos happened in Shechem, ended. Now there's no one ruling there, but the next judge of Israel, and the word there for save really is the word, he's the savior of Israel. That's what these judges were. They were political, uh, well, military saviors. Um, and he was the one that ruled for 23 years. Then in verse three we see, after him arose Yair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Yair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Yair died and was buried in Cayman. Uh, just a couple words here. He also seems to have a stable reign. His word, his name means, may God enlighten. Um, and what the commentators kind of focus on here is that these two judges are named for a reason here. Because you're sort of like, why even mention this if, if they don't do anything? Well, uh, the, firstly, this rounds off the number to 12 judges. This happens at the beginning of Jephthah's judgeship. And at the end of Jephthah's Jephthah's judgeship, you get another three guys whose names I can never remember. Isban, Elon, and Abdon. Isban, not, not a lot of people name their kids after these judges. Isban, 
Elon and Elon Musk. There you go. Okay, I take that back. Some famous people are named after these judges. But anyway, these are five kind of little-known judges, and they're, they're listed here on either side of Jephthah's story. Now, Jephthah's story we'll get into next week, um, Lord willing, and it's a, it's a more prolonged story, and it has a lot to do with the fact that Jephthah had one daughter. And compare that to this guy who has, I mean, 30 sons. They rode on 30 donkeys and they had 30 cities. So what's being painted here is a picture of a man who had this enormous family. He was able to provide for all of them. They all have donkeys. So it's like, imagine you had 30 sons and you had to buy them all a car. And you were able to. It's like that kind of guy. And not only that, they established these 30 cities in this area of Ephraim as well. So, um, or where, where it came on. So in Gilead. Gilead, by the way, is Transjordan. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. So it's just outside of what we think of as Israel. And he's ruling Israel from this area. He's established his sons. He's established their cities. And so there's a stability with Tola and Yair. And then we'll get the story of Jephthah and his family situation and how tragic that is. And then it's framed again by another person who has, uh, you know, 30 sons and 40 grandsons and they have 70 donkeys. So we're going to hear about the donkeys. And the donkeys are just, it's literally just saying this, this guy wasn't poor. He had this many kids and he bought them all a car. Um, and so we have that framing the Jephthah story, which we'll get to. Okay. The point of tonight's text is what follows. <laughs> so... Let me read for you verse 6. The people, the people what? The people of Israel again that was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines and they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. So just stop there for a moment. These people have been delivered from their enemies time and time and time again, generation after generation after generation, by Yahweh, the God with whom they are in covenant relationship. And yet, whenever things are going well for them, they put their trust in whoever else is around, pretty much. They just want to be independent from Yahweh. They don't want to be independent from religion, or from a God to serve, they just want to pick a God that suits them, a God that puts them in line with the other people around them. And so this list, this is just, I mean, this is like a, a God bazaar. I mean, you just walk in, there's like a God on every shelf. Let's go shopping. I mean, you, you want the one of the, the, the Baals or the Ashtaroth? Those are the common ones. But here we've got some gods of Syria. Here we've got of Sidon, of Moab, the Ammonites, and even the Philistines. The fish god. We have a whole room of fish gods. Which one do you want? Can you imagine how insulting this is to God? We'll take anybody as long as it's not you. What a slap in the face. Going shopping for a god. Should we choose the classic golden calf? Should we try something more exotic that matches our furniture? Should we get the, the fish god, Dagon? Should we go with the stainless steel English badger or copper ostrich? I mean, it's, let's go shopping. Whatever you want, any idol, because at least we can see this idol. We can touch this idol and we can control this idol. So look what happens. Verse 7. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines. 
and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. And for 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God. And we've served the Baals. So, having just come from Israel and Jordan, it, it's fresh in my mind, this geography of the, the Cisjordan and the Transjordan is what they call it. So, Cisjordan would be what we think of as Israel. Transjordan is every, now it's the nation of Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan. And the way it was described to us by our lecturer is that there's, there's mouse kingdoms and there's cat kingdoms. And so the cat kingdoms are these big empires, you know, the, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Romans, um, the Greeks, the, the civilization forming, um, the Assyrians were as well, cat kingdoms, these huge kingdoms that come and like dominate the whole world, the known world. And then you've got these little mouse kingdoms. These are little kingdoms that are just trying to get on with their own world and they're trying to steal cheese from the other mice, but they're not really able to conquer anything. And Israel is one of these mouse kingdoms, very vulnerable. And, yeah, you know, the, the Ammon is a mouse kingdom, and Moab is a mouse kingdom, and Philistia is a mouse kingdom, and they're all just kind of like stealing cheese from each other and trying to take land and burning cities and grabbing stuff and trying to get loot or whatever, until the big cat kingdoms come and kind of wipe them out and take things over. And it's interesting how, when you look at history, you see God is the one moving these pieces around. God is the one that uses the... Even though they're just little mice kingdom, they're not going to destroy Israel or take them into captivity like the Babylonians would do. Um, they're going to irritate Israel. They are going to distress Israel. And, it, and they're going to keep with these little um, attacks that last sometimes decades, yeah, 18 years, where Israel's in this torment so that the next generation growing up hears not only the stories of Yahweh that are being passed down and seeing their parents um, deal with these other nations, but realize these other nations, the very gods we're worshiping, those people are attacking us all the time. What is the point of being loyal to the gods of the Ammonites when the Ammonites attack us, the gods of the Philistines when the Philistines attack us? And those two, by the way, are on, on either side of Israel as well. You're probably going to hear more geography in the sermons from now on because we had to memorize so many maps and stuff on this trip. But you've got these, these people attacking from both sides for 18 years. And so eventually the only solution is to cry out to God. And in verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And notice they only mention one of the gods that they served. They don't mention the whole list that's been there before. And then what follows is one of the most chilling commands in the whole Bible. Verse 11. And Yahweh said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Moanites? They pressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. And here's this command. Go 
and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Wow. Go worship your stinking idols. You chose them. Be consistent. Hey, I was providing for you. I was protecting you. Every time you've sinned and these people came in, I was the one that delivered you. And after all of that, you chose them. You want to worship those gods? Go worship them. Cry out to them. You want deliverance? Just be consistent. Notice that God is not commanding idolatry. Because at first you're like, wow, is there really a command in the Bible from God to go and worship another idol? He's not commanding idolatry. He's commanding consistency. He's saying, look, you've already picked them. You're already worshiping them. Well, cry out to them then. Be consistent. This reminds me of Romans 1 in the New Testament, verse 23. It speaks about the people who have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, because people exchange the glory of God for things that they can see and control, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then it goes on to talk about the penalty that's, that came from that. I mean, this is a new low point in the book of Judges, isn't it? And we've spoken about how, how the book of Judges is this downward spiral. It's kind of like a, a, a circle of they fall into sin, and then um, there's this attack from the enemies, and then God, they cry out and repent, and God raises up a, a judge, and then the judge delivers them, and then there's peace, and then they kind of get bored with the peace, and they go back to their gods, and they fall into sin again, and that cycle. But each time, you know, the peace is shorter... The oppression is longer in general. Um, there's, it gets worse. The chaos gets worse. There's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's in their own eyes. But this is the first time so far, really, in this entire sad saga where God says, I'm done. You want them? Go cry out to them. But God is faithful. They're the ones being unfaithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. But here you have people that are not keeping commandments. And so what you have to realize about this is that when you are not feeling close to God, it's not because God is being unfaithful. If you are feeling distant from God because there's sin and therefore consequence to sin, and we've looked at that in the past weeks, the different types of consequence that come for the different types of sins. And you're feeling, well, where is God in this? Why is this happening to me? Why isn't God delivering me from this? Why is he allowing this to happen? And you think that God is, what, asleep at the wheel? Not paying attention? Not caring? Not faithful? No, God is faithful. What's happening is you need to learn to just be consistent. Otherwise, it's, hey, I don't need God. I, I show up at church on Sunday. 
maybe on Sunday, maybe a few Sundays a year, I show up to church, I do my thing, I put my check in the offering, whatever it is, uh, and then I don't need God. I don't want him bossing me around, telling me what I can do, what I can say, uh, how I should spend my money, how I should spend my time. He needs to stay in his little church box and leaves the rest of the week to me until I need something, of course. Until I'm in trouble. I need to call out to God. You get upset with God when he doesn't bless you because you think you deserve blessing. How often does it happen when people say, I'm angry at God? What that implies is God is doing something wrong. He owes you something that he's not giving you. I mean, who can stand with a straight face and say, God owes me blessing? Proverbs 3.33 says, Yahweh's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. My question is, are you righteous? Can God bless you and still keep his reputation as a just God? I remember after 9-11, there was a spate of um, these bumper stickers, God bless America. God bless America became this big thing. People wearing t-shirts and there were banners and it was in songs and all this kind of thing. And at the time, John MacArthur preached a sermon, just one of those mic drop sermons, you know. We said, and it was titled this, Can God Bless America and Keep His Reputation? Not to pick on the states, any country's in the same boat, right? Who, who dares say we deserve blessing from God? We've earned it. We've done our part. I don't think anyone can say that. When people get angry at God, that's, that's what's happening. They think God's letting them down because they've been faithful and he's unfaithful. It's interesting to me, though, if you read in Scripture and the, the people that you meet, the godliest people I know who have gone through some of the most traumatic trials I know, they don't get angry at God. It's the people who should most obviously see that they're at odds with God that when something happens to them, they get angry at God and shake their fist at him. People become very religious and cry out like the Israelites do here. When they're finally in distress, when all this is happening after 18 years and they're being hit from both sides, they finally cry out to God. People get very religious in the time of their own distress. Suddenly God is in the picture now that we know him. This will happen. Sometimes people just show up at church. I haven't been to church in 20 years, but then this happened to my marriage, my child, my health, my business. And we don't turn anyone away. I mean, better late than never. We'll get to point number two in a moment. Come on in. But if you're in that place right now where you're living with one foot in the church and one foot in the world, be careful what you wish for. God might say, hey, you want the world? Run to the world. The God that a lot of people today put their faith in is the God of Mammon. We don't call him Mammon. We call him our retirement fund, stock portfolio, investment, emergency money, backup cash. What we're doing is we're putting our faith in our finances. The God of Mammon was the, the pagan God of money. And Jesus said... You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon is the word that he uses there. It's often translated money. 
you got all your backup money and your insurance and your emergency money and you feel safe and then something hits and you shake your fist at God. Why is he not providing for me? Malachi, this happened, you know, they ask, they ask with this sheer innocence of, what, us? What, what do you, how have we robbed you, God? What do you, what do you mean? We, how have we been robbing you? God says through tithes and offerings. You complain, why am I struggling financially? But you haven't believed God's promises. Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, one will also reap. It's in a financial context. Second Corinthians 9 as well. You can imagine God saying, go to your bank account that you've loved so much, that you've looked after so well. You got trouble? Go to you. Just be consistent. Just keep going where you've always been. If you ignore God and times are going well, then you should ignore him when things are going tough. I think of this disturbing example of Sir Francis Newport. He was the head of the English Atheist Society and when he was dying, he knew he was dying. He was on his deathbed and there were people around him and his atheist friends were just commending him you know, for, for championing their cause of atheism. And this is what he said on his deathbed. He said, you need not tell me there is no God for I know there is one and that I am in his angry presence. You need not tell me there is no hell, for I already feel my soul slipping into its fires. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know I am forever lost. Wow. Imagine being on your deathbed, and you finally are willing to admit, no, there is a God, and he's angry at me. There is a hell, and I deserve it. At least he's been consistent. He's lived his whole life against God, championing the cause of atheism, and on his deathbed he's been consistent. But there's another option. This brings us to our second point. You can be consistent, and in this case God's telling them to do it. But there's always another option. This is where our hope comes in. You can also be repentant. That's your other option. Be consistent and, and just keep ignoring God or be truly repentant. Look at verse 10. And the people cried out to Yahweh saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And after all that God says, Go cry out to your gods. In verse 14, the people of Israel said to Yahweh, in verse 15, We have sinned. And then this. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And then this. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they camped against Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they camped at Mizpah. And the people of Israel, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man that will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And next week we'll meet Jephthah. Jephthah is the answer to that prayer of repentance. And I don't want to spoil it, but God delivers them. God raises up a Savior. He's a complicated Savior. We're going to learn some lessons about him. 
but God answers. So what was different about the first crying out to the Lord and the second? Did you notice that? The first time they cry out to the Lord in their distress and they confess their sin. We followed the Baals. And God responds, well, just be consistent. Go cry out to your pagan gods. The second time they cry out, they confess their sin and they call God just by saying, do whatever, do whatever you need to to punish us. We're not calling the shots here, you are. But they still plead for deliverance. And then, what did verse 16 tell us? They put away the foreign gods and they served Yahweh. And that's when God became impatient over the misery of Israel. It's an idiom meaning that now God was moved to be on their side. That God was now feeling what they were feeling about their misery. Instead of saying, you want it, you chose it, be consistent, he changed. So what caused God to respond so well by raising up Jephthah the second time? And the answer is they didn't just confess with their lips. They meant it. It's sincere. And you see that fleshed out in their behavior. They actually put away the gods. So think about what that means the first time. God, please save us. We're we're being distressed. Yes, we've served the Baals. They don't mention any of the other gods because the other gods are still on their shelves. But when they put away their foreign gods and they change their behavior and they start serving Yahweh, he's moved to help them. True repentance is a confession of guilt and a putting off of the sin. Whenever you give your testimony, whenever you're sharing how you became a Christian, you ought to use the word repentance in there somewhere, or at least the concept of, and then I turned away from my sin. Because that's part of your repentance, that's part of your confession. Yes, what I'm doing is wrong, and therefore I'm going to stop. Otherwise, you're not repentant, you're just sorry. That's the difference between asking for forgiveness and apologizing. If I spill water on your lap in a restaurant, I say, I'm sorry. If I throw water in your face in the restaurant, I say, forgive me. You see the difference? The one thing I've done to you, and there's a disruption in our relationship that needs to be restored. The other one was a genuine accident, and I am sorry that it happened. But I didn't do it on purpose. So when you say sorry to God, oh, sorry I spilt this whole idolatry thing all over you, like it wasn't really on purpose, no, that's not repentance. Repentance is, I confess that what I did was sin. I'm going to stop doing it. Please forgive me. And part of forgive me is, do what you think is right. I don't deserve anything. I'm not coming with a stipulation of how you need to treat me. You treat me the way you think. That's true confession. Otherwise, you're just sorry that you got caught. You're sorry you got caught. In my ministry, I've had to counsel couples who have... Sometimes couples will come to me and say, you know, we've discovered this one spouse has committed adultery. What do we do now? And one of my first questions is, did you confess or were you caught? Because those are two different things. Everybody's sorry when they get caught. It doesn't mean you can't be genuinely repentant. It just means it's harder for other people to tell. 
It's a lot easier to tell that you're genuinely repentant when you volunteer before you're caught, I'm doing this. That's confession, bringing it into the light. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. If we're caught in our sins, well, your sorrow could just be skin deep. Can you think of someone in the Bible who was sorry about the consequences of what they had done but didn't repent? Judas. Judas Iscariot. He wept, he regretted it, he threw the money back. That's more than a lot of people do. But he never asked for forgiveness. He went out of this world on his own terms. You know who else? Esau. You know what the book of Hebrews tells us? Hebrews 12, 17. For you know that afterward he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. When Esau sold his birthright way back when, he didn't think much of it until his dad died and he didn't get the inheritance. And then he's wailing and gnashing his teeth and crying. Well, yeah, of course. Now. But he didn't repent. So it's easy to put on a remorseful mask without it being a true reflection of your heart. And that's what the Israelites had done at first, and that's how they changed. Here's the text for us New Testament believers. James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's a really interesting Bible verse. It's not a verse people embroider on pillows, right? Throw cushions and stuff. This isn't anyone's life verse. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. But the point is this. When it's sincere and you realize the depths of your sin, and you do business with God, and you draw close to him from that perspective, this is what I've done, and I'm wretchedly sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me. He draws close to you. Always. Always. Psalm 32 is a great example. Here's couple of verses David wrote in Psalm 32, supposedly after his, presumably after his sin of uh, adultery with Bathsheba. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity, and I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See the difference there? When I kept silent, I felt like my bones were rotting. I, I was groaning. Day and night, your hand was upon me. My strength was dried out. Have you ever felt that, like the, the crushing weight of guilt? You just can't get away from it. It's all you think about in the day. It's all you think about at night. You feel drained. You feel depressed. You want to be in a dark room. You don't want to go out. You're just laden with guilt. He said, that's how I felt for this protracted period of time. But as soon as I acknowledged my sin and I uncovered my sin and I confessed my sin, you forgave. Just like that. Friends, no matter how many times 
you, how many steps you take towards the west, how many steps does it take to be moving east? Just one. You see, if you, you could be walking your whole life, thousands of steps towards the west, and as soon as you turn around and take one step, you're now heading east. That's repentance. It doesn't matter how long you've been in sin. It doesn't matter how deep your sin has been. You can repent of your sin at any moment by turning your back on it. Stop running from God and just turn to him and he's always there. Go read the, prodigal, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. When he's sitting in his pigsty and he realizes, what have I done? It says that he came to his senses and went back home and said, do, he, basically what the Israelites said, do what you think is fit. Treat me like a slave. What did the father do? Killed the fattened calf, put a ring on his finger, put his cloak on it, had a party. Who, who, who's the father representing? God. God is waiting for you to repent. And as soon as you turn, he's there. Don't delay. But it must be sincere. Romans 10, 13 says, For who, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For he who confesses with his lips and believes in his heart that Jesus is raised from the dead, will be saved. John, uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've been distant from God, you can turn back to him tonight. I've said it before, I'll, I'll say, say it many times more. There's only one good thing about sin. Only one good thing. You can repent of it. You can turn your back on it in an instant. There's no ritual you have to do. There's no person you have to see. There's no price you have to pay. It's all been done by Jesus for you on the cross. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That Jesus lived that life that you have been messing up this whole time and gave that righteousness, made it available to anyone in the world who puts their faith in him. He did it on the cross once and for all, and you can turn to him no matter what you've done. And you might say, you have no idea the things I've done in my life. It doesn't matter. God can forgive anyone of any sin at any time completely. But you must cry out to him. He's our only hope. So if you are really willing to part with your sin, he will save you. Because he's raised up a savior. And if you want to see how he saved Israel, come back next week and we'll see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and your grace in our lives that we know that we can repent of sin at any moment. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will convict us when we are sinning, that you will bring it to our minds, that you would grant us the softness of heart and the desire for fellowship with our Savior. And we're so thankful, Lord Jesus, that there's nothing that needs to be done to save us because you did it all on Calvary. We pray that we would live lives that are worthy of our calling. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.